BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Section 4 of William Blake by G.K. Chesterton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. There never was a man of whom it was less true to say, as has been said, that he was a light, sensitive lyrist, a mere piper of pretty songs for children. His mind was like a ruined Roman arch. It has been broken by barbarians, but what there is of it is Roman. So it was with William Blake's reason. It had been broken, or cracked, by something, but what there was of it was reasonable in his art criticism he never said anything that was not strictly consistent with his first principles in his controversies in the many matters in which he argued angrily or venomously he never lost the thread of the argument like every great mystic he was also a great rationalist read blake's attack upon sodert's picture of the canterbury pilgrims and you will see that he could not only write a quite sensible piece of criticism, but even a quite slashing piece of journalism. By nature, one almost feels that he could have done anything, have conducted campaigns like Napoleon, or studied the stars like Newton. But something, when all is said and done, had eaten away whole parts of that powerful brain, leaving parts of it standing like great Greek pillars in a desert. What was this thing? Madness is not an anarchy. Madness is a bondage, a contraction. I will not call Blake mad because of anything he would say. But I will call him mad in so far as there was anything he must say. Now there are notes of this tyranny in Blake. It was not like the actual disease of the mind that makes a man believe he is a cat or a dog. It was more like the disease of the nerves, which makes a man say dog when he means cat. One mental jump or jerk of this nature may be especially remarked in Blake. He had in his poetry one very peculiar habit, a habit which cannot be considered quite sane. It was the habit of being haunted, one might almost say hag-ridden, by a fixed phrase which gets itself written in ten separate poems on quite different subjects, when it had no apparent connection with any of them. The amusing thing is that the omnipresent piece of poetry is generally the one piece that is quite incomprehensible. The verse that Blake's readers can understand least always seems to be the verse that Blake likes best. I give an ordinary instance, if anything connected with Blake can be called ordinary. 
the harmless Haley, who was a fool, but a gentleman and a poet, a country gentleman and a very minor poet, provoked Blake's indignation by giving him commissions for miniatures when he wanted to do something else, probably frescoes as big as a house. Blake wrote the epigram, If Haley knows the thing you cannot do, that's the very thing he'll set you to. And then, feeling that there was a lack of color and warmth in the portrait, he lightly added, for no reason in particular, the lines, And when he could not act upon my wife, hired a villain to bereave my life. There is apparently no trace here of any allusion to fact. Haley never tried to bereave anyone's life. He lacked even the adequate energy. Nevertheless, I should not say for a moment that this startling fiction proved Blake to be mad. It proved him to be violent and recklessly suspicious, but there was never the least doubt that he was that. But now turn to another poem of Blake's, a merely romantic and narrative poem called Fair Eleanor, which is all about somebody acting on somebody else's wife. Here we find the same line repeated, word for word, in quite another connection. Hired a villain to bereave my life. It is not a musical line. It does not resemble English grammar to any great extent. Yet Blake is somehow forced to put it into a poem about a real person, exactly as he put it into an utterly different poem about a fictitious person. There seems to be no particular reason for writing it even once, but he has to write it again and again. This is what I do call a mad spot on the mind. I should not call Blake mad for hating Haley, or for boiling Haley, though he had done him nothing but kindness, or for making up any statements, however monstrous or mystical, about Haley. I should not, in the least degree, think that Blake was mad if he had said that he saw Haley's soul in hell, that it had green hair, one eye, and a serpent for a nose. A man may have a wild vision without being insane. A man may have a lying vision without being insane. But I should smell insanity if, in turning over Blake's books, I found that this one pictorial image obsessed him, apart from its spiritual meaning. If I found that the arms of the Black Prince in King Edward III were Cyclops, Vert Rampant, Nosed Serpentine, if I found that Flaxman was praised for his kindness to a one-eyed animal with green bristles and a snarky snout, if Albion or Ezekiel had appeared to Blake and commanded him to write a history of the men in the moon, who are one-eyed, green-haired, with long curling noses, if any flimsy sketch or fine decorative pattern that came from Blake's pencil might reproduce ceaselessly and meaninglessly the writhing proboscis and the cyclopean eye, I should call that morbidity or even madness, for it would be the triumph of the palpable image over its own intellectual meaning. And there is something of that madness in the dark obstinacy or weakness that makes Blake introduce again and again these senseless scraps of rhyme as if they were spells to keep off the devil. In four or five different poems, without any apparent connection with those poems, occur these two extraordinary lines. The caterpillar on the leaf, 
repeats to thee thy mother's grief in the abstract this might perhaps mean something though it would i think take most people some time to see what it could mean in the abstract it may perhaps involve some allusion to a universal law of sacrifice in nature in the concrete that is in the context it involves no allusion to anything in heaven or earth here is another couplet that constantly recurs the red blood ran from the grey monk's side his hands and feet were wounded wide this is worse still for this cannot be merely abstract the ordinary rational reader will naturally exclaim at last with a not unnatural explosion who the devil is the grey monk and why should he be always bleeding in places where he has no business now to say that this sort of thing is not insanity of some kind is simply to play the fool with words a madman who writes this may be higher than ordinary humanity so may any madman in hanwell but he is a madman in every sense that the word has among men i have taken this case of actual and abrupt irrelevance as the strongest form of the thing but it has other forms almost equally decisive for instance blake had a strong sense of humor but it was not under control it could be eclipsed and could completely disappear there was certainly a spouting fountain of fierce laughter in the man who could write an epigram oh dirty sneaking knave i knew oh mr cromack how do you do yet the laughter was as fitful as it was fierce and it can suddenly fail blake's sense of humor can sometimes completely desert him he writes a string of verses against cruelty to the smallest creature as a sort of mystical insult to the universe it contains such really fine couplets as these each outcry of the hunted hare a fibre from the brain can tear a skylark wounded in the wing a cherubim does cease to sing or again in a more fanciful but genuinely weird way he who torments the chafer's sprite weaves a bower in endless night and then after all this excellent and quite serious poetry blake can calmly write down the following two lines he who the ox to wrath has moved shall never be by woman loved one could hardly find a more gilbertian absurdity in the conjunction of ideas in the whole of the bab ballads than the idea that the success of some gentleman in the society of ladies depends upon whether he has previously at some time or other slightly irritated an ox such sudden inaccessibility to laughter must be called a morbid symptom it must mean a blind spot on the brain the whole thing of course would prove nothing if blake were a common ranter incapable of writing well or a common dunce incapable of seeing a joke such a man might easily be sane enough he might be as sane as he was stupid if blake had always written badly he might be sane but a man who could write so well and did write so badly must be mad what was it that was eating away a part of blake's brain i venture to offer an answer which in the eyes of many people 
will have nothing to recommend it except the accident of its personal sincerity i firmly believe that what did hurt blake's brain was the reality of his spiritual communications in the case of all poets and especially in the case of blake the phrase an inspired poet commonly means a good poet about blake it is specially instinctive and about blake i am quite convinced it is specially untrue his inspired poems were not his good poems his inspired poems were very often his particularly bad ones they were bad by inspiration if a ploughman says that he saw a ghost it is not quite sufficient to answer merely that he is a madman it may have been seeing the ghost that drove him mad his lunacy may not prove the falsehood of his tale but rather its terrible truth so in the same way i differ from the common or sceptical critics of a man like blake such critics say that his visions were false because he was mad i say he was mad because his visions were true it was exactly because he was unnaturally exposed to a hail of forces that were more than natural that some breaches were made in his mental continuity some damage was done to his mind he was in a far more awful sense than goldsmith an inspired idiot he was an idiot because he was inspired when he said of jerusalem that its authors were in eternity one can only say that nobody is likely to go there to get any more of their work he did not say that the author of the tiger was in eternity the author of that glorious thing was in carnaby market it will generally be found i think with some important exceptions that whenever blake talked most about inspiration he was actually least inspired that is he was least inspired by whatever spirit presides over good poetry and good thinking he was abundantly inspired by whatever spirit presides over bad poetry or bad thinking whatever god specializes in unreadable and almost unpronounceable verse was certainly present when he invented the extraordinary history of william bond or the maddening meter of the lines to mr butts whatever archangel rules over utter intellectual error had certainly spread his wings of darkness over blake when he had come to the conclusion that a man ought to be bad in order to be pardoned but these unthinkable thoughts are mostly to be found in his most unliterary productions notably in the prophetic books to put my meaning broadly the opinions which nobody can agree with are mostly in the books that nobody can read i really believe that this was not from blake but from his spirits it's all very well for great men like mr rossetti and mr swinburne to trust utterly to the seraphim of blake they may naturally trust angels they do not believe in them but i do believe in angels and incidentally in fallen angels there is no danger to health in being a mystic but there may be some danger to health in being a spiritualist it would be a very poor pun to say that a taste for spirits is bad for the health nevertheless oddly enough 
though a poor pun it is a perfectly correct philosophical parallel the difference between having a real religion and having a mere curiosity about psychic marvels is really very like the difference between drinking beer and drinking brandy between drinking wine and drinking gin beer is a food as well as a stimulant so a positive religion is a comfort as well as an adventure a man drinks his wine because it is his favorite wine the pleasure of his palate or the vintage of his valley a man drinks alcohol merely because it is alcoholic so a man calls upon his gods because they are good or at any rate good to him because they are the idols that protect his tribe or the saints that have blessed his birthday but spiritualists call upon spirits merely because they are spirits they ask for ghosts because they are ghosts i have often been haunted with the fancy that the creeds of men might be paralleled and represented in their beverages wine might stand for genuine catholicism and ale for genuine protestantism for these at least are real religions with comfort and strength in them clean cold agnosticism would be clean cold water an excellent thing if you can get it most modern ethical and idealistic movements might well be represented by soda water which is a fuss about nothing mr bernard shaw's philosophy is exactly like black coffee it awakens but does not really inspire modern hygienic materialism is very like cocoa it would be impossible to express one's contempt for it in stronger terms than that sometimes very rarely one may come across something that may honestly be compared to milk an ancient and heathen mildness an earthly yet sustaining mercy the milk of human kindness you can find it in a few pagan poets and a few old fables but it is everywhere dying out now if we adopt this analogy for the sake of argument we shall really come back to the bad pun for we shall conclude that a taste for spiritualism is very like a taste for spirits the man who drinks gin or methylated spirit does it only because it makes him supernormal so the man who with tables or planquettes invokes supernatural beings invokes them only because they are supernatural he does not know that they are good or wise or helpful he knows that he desires the deity but he does not even know that he likes him he attempts to invoke the god without adoring him he is interested in whatever he can find out touching supernatural existence but he is not really filled with joy as by the face of a divine friend any more than any one actually likes the taste of methylated spirit in such psychic investigations in a word there is excitement but not affectional satisfaction there is brandy but no food now blake was the most reckless and sometimes even the most vulgar sense a spiritualist he threw the doors of his mind open to what the late george macdonald called in a fine phrase the canile of the other world i think it is impossible to look at some of the pictures which blake drew under what he considered direct spiritual dictation without feeling that he was from time to time under influences that were not only evil 
but even foolishly evil. I give one case out of numberless cases. Blake drew, from his own vision, a head which he called the man who built the pyramids. Anyone can appreciate the size and mystery of the idea, and most people would form some sort of fancy of how a great poetical painter, such as Michelangelo or Watts, would have rendered the idea. They can conceive a face swarthy and secret, or ponderous and lowering, or staring and tropical, or Apollonian and pure. Whatever was the man who built the pyramids, one feels that he must, to put it mildly, have been a clever man. We look at Blake's picture of the man, and with a start, behold the face of an idiot. Nay, we behold even the face of an evil idiot, a leering, half-witted face with no chin and the protuberant nose of a pig. Blake declared that he drew this face from a real spirit, and I see no reason to doubt that he did. But if he did, it was not really the man who built the pyramids. It was not any spirit with whom a gentleman ought to wish to be on intimate terms. That vision of swinish silliness was really a bad vision to have. It left a smell of demonic silliness behind it. I am very sure that it left Blake sillier than it found him. In this way, rightly or wrongly, I explain the chaos, an occasional weakness, which perplexes Blake's critics, and often perplex Blake himself. I think he suffered from the great modern loneliness and skepticism, which is the root of the sorrows of the mere spiritualist. The tragedy of the spiritualist simply is that he has to know his gods before he loves them. But a man ought to love his gods before he is sure that there are any. The sublime words of St. John's Gospel permit of a sympathetic parody. If a man love not God whom he has not seen, how shall he love God whom he has seen? If we do not delight in Santa Claus, even as a fancy, how can we expect to be happy, even if we find that he is a fact? But a mystic like Blake simply puts up a placard for the whole universe, like an old woman letting lodgings. The mansion of his mind was indeed a magnificent one. But no one may be surprised if the first man that walked into it was the man who built the pyramids, the man with the face of a moon-calf, and whether or no he built the pyramids, he unbuilt the house. But this conclusion, touching Blake's original sanity but incidental madness, brings us abruptly in contact with the larger question of how far his soul and creed gained or suffered from his whole position, his heterodoxy, his orthodoxy, his attitude towards his age. Properly to do all this, we must now do at the end of this book what ought, but the form of the book forbade, more strictly to have done at the beginning. We must speak as shortly as possible about the actual age in which Blake lived, and we cannot do it without saying something which we will say as briefly as possible of that whole great Western society and tradition to which he belonged, and we belong equally, that Christendom, or continent of Europe, which is at once too big for us to measure, 
and too close for us to understand. What was the 18th century? Or rather, to speak less mechanically and with more intelligence, what was that mighty and unmistakable phase or mood through which Western society was passing about the time that William Blake became its living child? What was the persistent trend or spirit which all through the 18th century lifted itself like a very slow and very smooth wave to the deafening breaker of the French Revolution? Of course, it meant something slightly different to all its different children. Let us here ask ourselves what it meant to Blake, the poet, the painter, and the dreamer. Let us try to state the thing as nearly as possible, in terms of his spirit, and in relation to his unique work in this world. Every man of us today is three men. There is in every modern European three powers so distinct as to be almost personal, the trinity of our earthly destiny. The three may be rudely summarized thus. First and nearest to us is the Christian, the man of the historic church, of the creed that must have colored our minds incurably, whether we regard it, as I do, as the crown and combination of the other two, or whether we regard it as an accidental superstition, which has remained for two thousand years. First, then, comes the Christian. Behind him comes the Roman, the citizen of that great cosmopolitan realm of reason and order, in the level and equality of which Christianity arose. He is the Stoic, who is so much sterner than the Anchorites. He is the Republican, who is so much prouder than kings. He it is that makes straight roads and clear laws, and for whom good sense is good enough. And the third man, he is harder to speak of. He has no name, and all true tales of him are blotted out. Yet he walks behind us in every forest path, and wakes within us when the wind wakes at night. He is the origins. He is the man in the forest. It is no part of our subject to elaborate the point, but it may be said in passing that the chief claim of Christianity is exactly this, that it revived the pre-Roman madness, yet brought it into the Roman order. The gods had really died long before Christ was born. What had taken their place was simply the god of government, Divus Caesar. The pagans of the real Roman Empire were nothing if not respectable. It is said that when Christ was born, the cry went through the world that Pan was dead. The truth is that when Christ was born, Pan for the first time began to stir in his grave. The pagan gods had become pure fables when Christianity gave them a new lease of life as devils. I venture to wager that if you found one man in such a society who seriously believed in the personal existence of Apollo— he was probably a Christian. Christianity called to a kind of clamorous resurrection all the old supernatural instincts of the forests and the hill, but it put upon this occult chaos the Roman idea of balance and sanity. Thus marriage was a sacrament, but mere sex was not a sacrament as it was in many of the frenzies of the forest. Thus wine was a sacrament with Christ, but drunkenness was not a sacrament as with Dionysus. In short, Christianity, merely historically seen, 
can best be understood as an attempt to combine the reason of the marketplace with the mysticism of the forest it was an attempt to accept all the superstitions that are necessary to man and to be philosophic at the end of them pagan rome has sought to bring order or reason among men christian rome sought to bring order and reason among gods given these three principles the epoch we discuss can be defined the eighteenth century was primarily the return of reason and of rome it was the coming to the top of the stoic and civic element in that triple mixture it was full like the roman world of a respect for law End of section 4section five of william blake by g k chesterton this librivox recording is in the public domain note that the priest still wears in the main the popular garb of the middle ages but the lawyer still wears the headdress of the eighteenth century yet while the roman world was full of rule it was also full of revolution but indeed the two things necessarily go together the english used to boast that they had achieved a constitutional revolution but every revolution must necessarily be a constitutional revolution in so far that it must have reference to some antecedent theory of justice a man must have rights before he can have wrongs so it may be constantly remarked that the countries which have done the most to spread legal generalizations and judicial decisions are those most filled with political fury and potential rebellion rome for instance and france rome planted in every tribe and village the root of the roman law at the very time when her own town was torn with faction and bloody with partisan butcheries france forced intellectually on nearly all europe an excellent code of law and she did it when her own streets were hardly cleared of corpses when she was in a panting pause between two pulverizing civil wars and on the other hand you may remark that the countries where there is no revolution are the countries where there is no law where mental chaos has clouded every intelligible legal principle such countries as morocco and modern england the eighteenth century then ended in revolution because it began in law it was the age of reason and therefore the age of revolt it is needless to say how systematically it revived all the marks and motives of that ancient pagan society in which christianity first arose its greatest art was oratory its favorite affectation was severity its pet virtue was public spirit its pet sin political assassination it endured the pompous but hated the fantastic it had pure contempt for anything that could be called obscure to a virile mind at that epoch such as dr johnson or fox a poem or picture that did not at once explain itself was simply like a gun that did not go off or a clock that stopped suddenly it was simply a failure fit for indifference or for a fleeting satire in spite of their solid convictions for which they died 
the men of that time always used the word enthusiast as a term of scorn. All that we call mysticism, they called madness. Such was the eighteenth-century civilization. Such was the strict and undecorated frame from which look at us the blazing eyes of William Blake. So far, Blake and his century are a mere contrast, but here we must remember that the three elements of Europe are not the strata of rock, but the strands of a rope. Since all three have existed, not one of them has ever appeared entirely unmixed. You may call the Renaissance pagan, but Michelangelo cannot be imagined as anything but a Christian. You may call Thomas Aquinas Christian, but you cannot say exactly what he would have been without Aristotle the pagan. You may, even in calling Virgil the poet of Roman dignity and good sense, still ask whether he did not remember something older than Rome when he spoke of the good luck of him who knew the field gods and the old man of the forest. In the same way there was even in the eighteenth century an element of the purely Christian and an element of the purely primitive. And, as it happens, both these non-rational, or non-Roman, strains in the eighteenth century are particularly important in considering the mental makeup of William Blake, for the first alien strain in this century practically represents all that is effective and fine in this great genius. The second strain represents, without question, all that is doubtful, all that is irritating, and all that is ineffective in him. In the eighteenth century there were two elements not taken from the Roman Stoic or the Roman citizen. The first was what our century calls humanitarianism, what that century called the tear of sensibility. The old pagan commonwealths were democratic, but they were not in the least humanitarian. They had no tears to spare for a man at the mercy of the community. They reserved all their anger and sympathy for the community at the mercy of a man. That individual compassion for an individual case was a pure product of Christianity, and when Voltaire flung himself with fury into the special case of Kala, he was drawing all his energies from the religion that he denied. A Roman would have rebelled for Rome, but not for Kala. This personal humanitarianism is the relic of Christianity, perhaps, if I may say so, the dregs of Christianity. Of this humanitarianism, or sentimentalism, or whatever it can best be called, Blake was the enthusiastic inheritor. Being the great man that he was, he naturally anticipated lesser men than himself, and among the men less than himself I should count Shelley, for instance, and Tolstoy. He carried his instinct of personal kindness to the point of denouncing war as such. Naught can deform the human race like the armorer's iron brace. Or again, the strongest poison ever known came from Caesar's iron crown. No pagan republican, such as those on whom the eighteenth-century ethic was founded, could have made head or tail of this mere humanitarian horror. 
he could not even have comprehended the idea that war is immoral when it is not unjust you cannot find this sentiment in the pagans of antiquity but you can find it in the pagans of the eighteenth century you can find it in the speeches of fox the soliloquies of rousseau and even in the sniggering of gibbon here is an element of the eighteenth century which is derived darkly but indubitably from christianity and in which blake strongly shares regulus has returned to be tortured and pagan rome is saved but christianity thinks a little of regulus a man must be pitied even when he must be killed that individual compassion provoked blake to violent and splendid lines and the slaughtered soldier's cry runs in blood down palace walls the eighteenth century did not find that pity where it found its pagan liberty and its pagan law it took this out of the very churches that it violated and from the desperate faith that it denied this irrational individual pity is the purely christian element in the eighteenth century this irrational individual pity is the purely christian element in william blake and second there was another eighteenth-century element that was neither of christian nor of pagan rome it was from the origins it had been in the world throughout the whole history of paganism and christianity it had been in the world but not of it this element appeared popularly in the eighteenth century in an extravagant but unmistakable shape the element can be summed up in one word Cagliostro. No other name is quite so adequate, but if any one desires a nobler name, a very noble one, we may say Swedenborg. There was in the eighteenth century, despite its obvious good sense, this strain of a somewhat theatrical thaumaturgy. The history of that element is, in the most literal sense of the word, horribly interesting for it all works back to the mere bogey feeling of the beginnings it is amusing to remark that in the eighteenth century for the first time start up a number of societies which calmly announce that they have existed almost from the beginning of the world of these of course the best-known instance is the freemasons according to their own account they began with the pyramids but according to everyone else's account that can be effectively collected they began with the eighteenth century nevertheless the freemasons are right in the spirit even if they are wrong in the letter there is a tradition of things analogous to mystical masonry throughout all the historic generations of paganism and christianity there is a definite tradition outside christianity not of rationalism but of paganism paganism in the original and frightful forest sense pagan magic christianity rightly or wrongly always discouraged it on the ground that it was or tended to be black magic that is not here our concern the point is that this non-christian supernaturalism whether it was good or bad was continuous in spite of christianity its signs and traces
can be seen in every age. It hung like a huge fume, in many monstrous forms, over the dying Roman Empire. It was the energy in the Gnostics, who so nearly captured Christianity, and who were persecuted for their pessimism. In the full sunlight of the living church, it dared to carve its symbols upon the tombs of the Templars. And when the first sects raised their heads at the Reformation, its ancient and awful voice was heard. Now the eighteenth century was primarily the release, as its leaders held, of reason and nature from the control of the church. But when the church was once really weakened, it was the release of many other things. It was not the release of reason only, but of a more ancient unreason. It was not the release of the natural, but also of the supernatural, and also, alas, of the unnatural. The heathen mystics, hidden for two thousand years, came out of their caverns, and Freemasonry was founded. It was entirely innocent in the manner of its foundation, but so were all the other resurrections of this ancestral occultism. I give but one obvious instance out of many. The idea of enslaving another human soul, without lifting a finger or making a gesture of force, of enslaving a soul simply by willing its slavery, is an idea which all healthy human societies would regard, and did regard, as hideous and detestable, if true. Throughout all the Christian ages, the witches and warlocks claimed this abominable power, and boasted of it. They were, somewhat excusably, killed for their boasting. The eighteenth-century rationalist movement came, intent, thank God, upon much cleaner things, upon common justice and right reason in the state. Nevertheless, it did weaken Christianity, and in weakening Christianity— it uplifted and protected the wizard. Mesmer stepped forward, and for the first time safely affirmed this infamous power to exist. For the first time a warlock could threaten spiritual tyranny and not be lynched. Nevertheless, if a mesmerist really had the powers which some mesmerists have claimed, and which most novels give to him, there is, I hope, no doubt at all that any decent mob would drown him like a witch. The revolt of the eighteenth century, then, did not merely release naturalism, but a certain kind of supernaturalism also. And of this particular kind of supernaturalism, Blake is particularly the heir. Its coarse embodiment is Cagliostro. Its noble embodiment is Swedenborg. But in both cases it can be remarked that the mysticism marks an effort to escape from, or even to forget, the historic Christian, and especially the Catholic Church. Cagliostro, being a man of mean spirituality, separated himself from Catholicism by rearing against it a blazing pageant of mystical paganism, of triangles, secret seals, Eleusinian initiation, and all the vulgar refinements of a secret society. Swedenborg, being a man of large and noble spirituality, marked his separation from Catholicism by inventing, out of his own innocence and genius, 
nearly all the old Catholic doctrines, sincerely believing them to be his own discoveries. It is startling to note how near Swedenborg was to Catholicism, in his insistence on free will, for instance, on the humanity of the incarnate God, and on the relative and mystical view of the Old Testament. There was in Blake a great deal of Swedenborg, as he would have been the first to admit, and there was occasionally a little of the Cagliostro. Blake did not belong to a secret society, for, to tell the truth, he had some difficulty in belonging to any society. But Blake did talk a secret language. He had something of that haughty and oligarchic element in his mysticism, which marked the old pagan secret societies, and which marks the theosophists and oriental initiates to this day. There was in him, besides the beneficent wealth of Swedenborg, some touch of the Cagliostro and the Freemasons. These things Blake did inherit from that break-up of belief that can be called the eighteenth century. We will debit him with these as an inheritance. And when we have said this, we have said everything that can be said of any debt he owed. His debts are cleared here. His estate is cleared with this payment. All that follows is himself. If a man has some fierce or unfamiliar point of view, he must, even when he is talking about his cat, begin with the origin of the cosmos, for his cosmos is as private as his cat. Horace could tell his pupils to plunge into the middle of the thing, because he and they were agreed about the particular kind of thing. The author and his readers substantially sympathized about the beauty of Helen or the duties of Hector. But Blake really had to begin at the beginning because it was a different beginning. This explains the extraordinary air of digression and irrelevancy which can be observed in some of the most direct and sincere minds. It explains the bewildering elusiveness of Dante, the galloping parentheses of Rabelais, the gigantic prefaces of Mr. Bernard Shaw. The brilliant man seems more lumbering and elaborate than anyone else, because he has something to say about everything. The very quickness of his mind makes the slowness of his narrative, for he finds sermons in stones in all the paving stones of the street he plods along. Every fact or phrase that occurs in the immediate question carries back his mind to the ages and the initial power, because he is an original, he is always going back to the origins. Take, for instance, Blake's verse rather than his pictorial art. When the average sensible person reads Blake's verse, he simply comes to the conclusion that he cannot understand it. But in truth, he has a much better right to offer this objection to Blake than to most of the slightly elusive or eccentric writers to whom he also offers it. Blake is obscure in a much more positive and practical sense than Browning is obscure, or in another manner, Mr. Henry James is obscure. Browning is generally obscure through an almost brutal eagerness to get to big truths, which leads him to smash a sentence and to leave only bits of it. Mr. Henry James is obscure 
because he wishes to trace tiny truths by a dissection for which human language, even in his exquisite hands, is hardly equal. In short, Browning wishes almost unscrupulously to get to the point. Mr. James refuses to admit, on the mere authority of Euclid, that the point is indivisible, but Blake's obscurity is startlingly different to both. It is at once more simple and more impenetrable. It is not a different diction, but a different language. It is not that we cannot understand the sentences. It is that we often misunderstand the words. The obscurity of Blake commonly consists in the fact that the actual words used mean one thing in Blake and quite another thing in the dictionary. Mr. Henry James wants to split hairs. Browning wants to tear them up by the roots. But in Blake the enigma is at once plainer and more perplexing. It is simply this, that if Blake says hairs, he may not mean hairs, but something else, perhaps peacock feathers. To quote but one example out of a thousand, when Blake uses the word devils, he generally means some particularly exalted order of angels, such as preside over energy and imagination. End of section 5section six of william blake by g k chesterton this librivox recording is in the public domain a verbal accident has confused the mystical with the mysterious mysticism is generally felt vaguely to be itself vague a thing of clouds and curtains of darkness or concealing vapours of bewildering conspiracies or impenetrable symbols some quacks have indeed dealt in such things but no true mystic ever loved darkness rather than light no pure mystic ever loved mere mystery the mystic does not bring doubts or riddles the doubts and riddles exist already we all feel the riddle of the earth without any one to point it out the mystery of life is the plainest part of it the clouds and curtains of darkness the confounding vapours these are the daily weather of this world. Whatever else we have grown accustomed to, we have grown accustomed to the unaccountable. Every stone or flower is a hieroglyphic of which we have lost the key. With every step of our lives, we enter into the middle of some story which we are certain to misunderstand. The mystic is not the man who makes mysteries, but the man who destroys them. The mystic is one who offers an explanation, which may be true or false, but which is always comprehensible, by which I mean not that it is always comprehended, but that it always can be comprehended, because there is always something to comprehend. The man whose meaning remains mysterious fails, I think, as a mystic, and Blake, as we shall see, did for certain peculiar reasons of his own often fail in this way but even when he was himself hard to be understood it was never through himself not understanding it was never because he was vague or mystified or groping that he was unintelligible while his utterance was not only dim but dense his opinion was not only clear 
but even cocksure. You and I may be a little vague about the relations of Albion to Jerusalem, but Blake is as certain about them as Mr. Chamberlain about the relations of Birmingham to the British Empire. And this can be said for his singular literary style, even at his worst, that we always feel that he is saying something very plain and emphatic, even when we have not the wildest notion of what it is. There is one element always to be remarked in the true mystic, however disputed his symbolism, and that is its brightness of color and clearness of shape. I mean that we may be doubtful about the significance of a triangle, or the precise lesson conveyed by a crimson cow, but in the work of a real mystic, the triangle is a hard mathematical triangle, not to be mistaken for a cone or a polygon. The cow is in color a rich incurable crimson, and in shape unquestionably a cow, not to be mistaken for any of its evolutionary relatives, such as the buffalo or the bison. This can be seen very clearly, for instance, in the Christian art of illumination, as practiced, at its best, in the thirteenth and fourteenth centuries. The Christian decorators, being true mystics, were chiefly concerned to maintain the reality of objects, for the highest dogma of the spiritual is to affirm the material. By plain outline and positive color, those pious artists strove chiefly to assert that a cat was truly, in the eyes of God, a cat, and that a dog was preeminently doggish. This decision of tint and outline belongs not only to Blake's pictures, but even to his poetry. Even in his descriptions there is no darkness, and practically, in the modern sense, no distance. All his animals are as absolute as the animals on a shield of heraldry. His lambs are of unsullied silver. His lions are of flaming gold. His lion may lie down with his lamb, but he will never really mix with him. Really, to make this point clear, one would have to go back to the twelfth century, or perhaps to Plato. Metaphysics must be avoided. They are too exciting. But the root of the matter can be pretty well made plain by one word. The whole difference is between the old meaning and the new meaning of the word realist. In modern fiction and science, a realist means a man who begins at the outside of a thing, sometimes merely at the end of a thing, knowing the monkey only by its tail, or the motor by its smell. In the twelfth century, a realist meant exactly the opposite. It meant a man who began at the inside of a thing. The medieval philosopher would only have been interested in a motor because it moved. He would have been interested, that is, only in the central and original idea of a motor, in its ultimate motorishness. He would have been concerned with a monkey only because of its monkeyhood, not because it was like man but because it was unlike. If he saw an elephant, he would not say in the modern style, I see before me a combination of the tusks of a wild boar in unnatural development, of the long nose of the taper, needlessly elongated, of the tail of the cow, unusually insufficient, and so on. He would merely see an essence of elephant. 
he would believe that this light and fugitive elephant of an instant as dancing and fleeting as the mayfly in may was nevertheless the shadow of an eternal elephant conceived and created by god when you have quite realized this ancient sense in the reality of an elephant go back and read william blake's poems about animals as for instance about the lamb and about the tiger you will see quite clearly that he is talking of an eternal tiger who rages and rejoices forever in the sight of god you will see that he is talking of an eternal and supernatural lamb who can only feed happily in the fields of heaven it is exactly here that we find the full opposition to that modern tendency that can fairly be called impressionism impressionism is skepticism it means believing one's immediate impressions at the expense of one's more permanent and positive generalizations it puts what one notices above what one knows it means the monstrous heresy that seeing is believing a white cow at one particular instant of the evening light may be gold on one side and violet on the other the whole point of impressionism is to say that she really is a gold and violet cow the whole point of impressionism is to say that there is no white cow at all what can we tell it cries beyond what we can see but the essence of mysticism is to insist that there is a white cow however veiled with shadow or painted with sunset gold blessed are they who have seen the violet cow and who yet believe in the white one to the mystic a white cow has a sort of solid whiteness as if the cow were made out of frozen milk to him a white horse has a solid whiteness as if he were cut out of the firm english chalk like the white horse in the valley of king alfred the cow's whiteness is more important than anything except her cowishness if blake had ever introduced a white cow into one of his pictures there would at least have been no doubt about either of those two elements similarly there would have been no doubt about them in any old christian illumination on this point he is at one with all the mystics and with all the saints this explanation is really essential to the understanding of blake because to the modern mind it is so easy to understand him in the opposite sense in the ordinary modern meaning blake's symbols are not symbols at all they are not allegories an allegory nowadays means taking something that does not exist as a symbol of something that does exist we believe at least most of us do that sin does exist we believe on highly insufficient grounds that a dragon does not exist so we make the unreal dragon an allegory of the real sin but that is not what blake meant when he made the lamb the symbol of innocence he meant that there really is behind the universe an eternal image called the lamb of which all living lambs are merely the copies or the approximation he held that eternal innocence to be an actual and even an awful thing he would not have seen anything comic 
any more than the Christian evangelists saw anything comic in talking about the wrath of the Lamb. If there were a Lamb in one of Aesop's fables, Aesop would never be so silly as to represent him as angry. But Christianity is more daring than Aesop, and the wrath of the Lamb is its great paradox. If there is an immortal Lamb, a being whose simplicity and freshness are forever renewed, then it is truly and really a more creepy idea to horrify that being into hostility than to defy the flaming dragon or challenge the darkness or the sea. No old wolf or world-worn lion is so awful as a creature that is always young, a creature that is always newly born. But the main point here is simpler. It is merely that Blake did not mean that meekness was true, and the lamb only a pretty fable. If anything, he meant that meekness was a mere shadow of the everlasting lamb. This distinction is essential to anyone at all concerned for this rooted spirituality, which is the only enduring sanity of mankind. The personal is not a mere figure for the impersonal. Rather, the impersonal is a clumsy term for something more personal than common personality. God is not a symbol of goodness. Goodness is a symbol of God. Some very odd passages in Blake become clear if we keep this in mind. I do not wish, in this book, to dwell unduly on the other side of Blake, the literary side, but there are queer facts worth remarking, and this is one of them. Blake was sincere. If he was insane, he was insane with the very solidity and completeness of his sincerity. And the quaintest mark of his sincerity is this, that in his poetry he constantly writes things that look like mere mistakes. He writes one of his most colossal convictions, and the average reader thinks it is a misprint. To give only one example, not connected with the matter in hand, the fine though somewhat frantic poem called The Everlasting Gospel begins exactly as the modern humanitarian and essential Christian would like it to begin. The vision of Christ that thou dost see is my vision's greatest enemy. It goes on, to the modern Christian's complete satisfaction, with denunciations of priests and praise of the pure gospel Jesus, and then comes a couplet like this. Thine is the friend of all mankind. Mine speaks in parables to the blind. And the modern humanitarian Christian finds the orthodox Christ calmly rebuked because he is the friend of all mankind. The modern Christian simply blames the printer. He can only suppose that the words thine and mine have been put in each other's places by accident. Blake, however, as it happens, meant exactly what he said. His private vision of Christ was the vision of a violent and mysterious being, often indignant and occasionally disdainful. He acts with honest, disdainful pride and that is the cause that Jesus died. Had he been Antichrist, creeping Jesus, he would have done anything to please us, gone sneaking into their synagogues, and not use the elders and priests like dogs. 
when the reader has fully realized this idea of a fierce and mysterious jesus he may then see the sense in the statement that this jesus speaks in parables to the blind while the lower and meaner jesus pretends to be the friend of all men but you have to know blake's doctrine before you can understand two lines of his poetry now in the point which is here prominently before us there is a quotation indeed there is more than one which follows this same fantastic line let the ordinary modern man who is generally speaking not a materialist and not a mystic read first these two lines from the poem falsely called the auguries of innocence god appears and god is light to those poor souls that dwell in night he will not find anything objectionable in that at any rate probably he will bow his head slightly to a truism as if he were in church then he will read the next two lines but does a human form display to those that dwell in realms of day and there the modern man will sit down suddenly on the sofa and come finally to the conclusion that william blake was mad and nothing else but those last two lines express all that is best in blake and all that is best in all the tradition of the mystics those two lines explain perfectly all that i have just pointed out concerning the palpable visions and the ponderous cherubim this is the point about blake that must be understood if nothing else is understood god for him was not more and more vague and diaphanous as one came near to him god was more and more solid as one came near when one was far off one might fancy him to be impersonal when one came into personal relation one knew that he was a person the personal god was the fact the impersonal god of the pantheists was a kind of condescending symbol according to blake and there is more in the mental attitude than most modern people will willingly admit this vague cosmic view is a mere merciful preparation for the old practical and personal view god is merely light to the merely unenlightened god is a man to the enlightened we are permitted to remain for a time evolutionary or pantheist until the time comes when we are worthy to be anthropomorphic understand this blake conception that the divine is most bodily and definite when we really know it and the severe lines and sensational literalism of his other and more pictorial work will be easily understood naturally his divinities are definite because he thought that the more they were definite the more they were divine naturally god was not to him a hazy light breaking through the tangle of the evolutionary undergrowth nor the blinding brilliancy in the highest place of the heavens god was to him the magnificent old man depicted in his dark and extraordinary illustrations of job the old man with the monstrous muscles the mild stern eyebrows the long smooth silver hair and beard in the dialogues between jehovah and job there is little difference between the two ponderous and palpable old men except that the vision of the deity is a little more solid than the human being but then blake held that deity is more solid than humanity 
he held that what we call the ideal is not only more beautiful, but more actual than the real. The ordinary, educated, modern person, staring at these Job designs, can only say that God is a mere elderly twin brother of Job. Blake would have at once retorted that Job was an image of God. End of section 6